Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. I love to play this little game when I was a kid. Lived where there were some pretty hot summers, you know, hot summer day, little kid running around, getting sweaty, needing to quench the thirst, getting on the end of the hose, and one of you would be on the faucet and one at the end of the hose, right? Just kind of give a little trickle. So my friend had to kind of suck the water out and then without warning just open the floodgates, right, and just kind of explode his lips apart. That was a fun game when I was a kid. Just thought about that this morning sitting here. But I'm older now, and I don't do that without warning, but I want to warn you this morning. I'm asking you this morning that you put your lips around the fire hose because I'm going to open it up hard and fast, and you're going to have to swallow quickly in order for us to get through what we need to get through today. Okay, Romans chapter 11. We're going to settle back in to our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Let me give you, because we've been gone from it for about three weeks, let me give you just a brief review. Romans 11 can be broken up into two sections. What Paul is talking about in Romans 11 primarily is what God's relationship is to and his long-term historic plan is for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And so what he does in Romans chapter 11 is he says two great truths through Paul's pen about God's plan, his plan for the Jewish people. In the first 10 verses, here's what the Spirit of God teaches through Paul. He teaches that God's rejection of the Jewish people is not total. It's not a complete rejection. You see, in Paul's day, in mass, the Jewish people had disbelieved in Christ, and because of their rejection of Christ, God had rejected them. And Paul, down through Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's broken over that. He's weeping over that. He's longing that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, would be saved. But the reality is that the vast majority of them are under God's condemnation and not under God's blessing in His covenant. And so what Paul does in the first 10 verses is that he teaches God has not totally rejected his people. There are still some Jews that are saved, and that's true today. For the past past 2,000 years, that situation has continued. Vast majority of Jews are outside of the covenant promises of God. They're outside of the blessing of God and under his rejection, but there are some that are saved. So God's rejection of them is not total. And then in verses 11 to 32, second part of Romans chapter 11, here's the truth. God's rejection of the Jews is not final. 
God has not completely finished with the Jews. He still has something in the future that he is planning for the Jew. He hasn't completely set aside his will related to them because of their rejection. And so we have been seeing that truth unfold. And in verse 16 of the 11th chapter, Paul begins to use this analogy of a tree and the roots of the tree. And for the sake of the illustration, let me just, I'm not going to re-preach it, but remind you of that illustration. There is a tree, we could call it the tree of salvation or the tree of election, those that God is bringing to Himself and joining to Christ. That's the branches of the tree. And what Paul has said is that the forefathers of the Jewish people that would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the forefathers. They're the root of the tree. And ethnic Israel are the branches to the tree. National Israel, those descended from Abraham. And what Paul has shown us is that this nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, is in vast majority cut off from the tree of salvation. They are not connected to the covenant promises of God because of the rejection of Jesus Christ. And what has happened is that God has taken wild branches, that's Gentiles, those that are not naturally related to the tree of salvation, us, and He's grafted Gentiles in to the tree of salvation that has this Jewish history and the roots of the forefathers of Judaism, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant promises made to them. So that's been the storyline of Romans 11. Now we come where we left off the last time that we looked at Romans 11 at verse 23. And so let's pick it up here in verse 23. And remember the point. What's the point to the second half of Romans 11? It's this, that God has not forever finished with Israel. He has a future plan. Romans 11:23. We're picking this up in the middle of the narrative. And Paul writes, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So here's the first question, who are the they? Paul says that they, if they don't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in again to the tree. It's really critical that we understand who the they are. If we read this quickly and we don't look closely at the context, here is what we could assume. Here's the conclusion that we would come to, and it would be the wrong conclusion. We could say, oh, wow, it looks like what happens is that there are individual people, let's say the Jews, who are connected to the tree of salvation, and that because of something that God sees in them. He takes them off of the tree. He unsaves them. He disconnects them. And then here in verse 23, he says, if they don't continue in their unbelief, he'll put them in again. And so now they're saved again. And then they disbelieve and are out again. And then they believe and are saved again. If we don't look closely, it looks like this text could be communicating 
this unbiblical doctrine of saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved, unsaved in the saved person's life. But if we look closely at who they are, we'll see that that is not what Paul is teaching. Let me just give you one proof that I think will be very obvious. You have to keep the text and the context in mind. Paul is writing about this nation. He's writing about this people that in wholesale fashion rejected Christ, and so God rejected them in wholesale fashion as a nation. And he is saying that if they as a nation do not remain in their unbelief, God can graft them back into the tree again. That was 1,900 years ago that he said that, talking about a future event. It hasn't happened yet. So here's the question. Is he talking about individuals? Is anybody alive then that was taken out that can be put back in? Anybody lived from that day to this day? No. He's talking about the nation as a whole. The they here in verse 23 is a national statement. This is the nation of Israel dealing with them as an ethnic people. And he is saying, if the Jews as a nation don't continue in their unbelief in Jesus Christ, but if they as a nation turn their hearts to Jesus, he is able, God is able, has the power to graft them back in to the tree of salvation. In fact, Paul says that it's not only possible for God to do that, what we're going to see is that Paul says it's a guarantee that God is going to do that. Look at verse 24. Let's continue following along in the text. Paul works this out logically related to the Jews and being grafted in again in verse 24. Just listen to this very simple but profound logic. For if, in other words, He's continuing the thought from verse 23. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, who's he writing to here? The church at Rome. church of Rome was primarily Gentile believers. They're not a part of the nation, the ethnic nation of Israel. And so what Paul is saying to the Gentiles here, and that would be true of almost all, maybe every one of us here, non-Jews, that if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, the Jewish tree, the covenants made to the Jews, if you as a Gentile, a pagan, were taken by God and by His power and connected to the covenant promises of God made to the nation of Israel how much more will these, the they, the nation of Israel, the Jews, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? So the point is this, and the logic is simple and profound. Paul is saying, look, if God has the power to take wild branches and connect them to this, 
tree that is contrary to their nature, graft them in so that they become part of that tree. In other words, take Gentiles and bring them into the truth and the covenants of the Jewish faith. How much easier, how much more certain is it that God can take the Jews again and graft them back in to their tree, which is a part of their natural nature. The logic is profound and simple and obvious. God can do that. He certainly, if he could do that for the Gentiles, he can do that for the Jews. So what Paul is doing is he's building up the case. Remember what Romans 11, the second part of the chapter is about, is about the fact that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. So he's setting the stage and getting ready to say something very explicit about the nation of Israel. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Look at the phrase, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Focus in on the word mystery. What does the word mystery mean? In other religions or in cults, You know what the word mystery refers to or the practices of their doctrine? There are a select few people, kind of the inner circle, the inner echelon that are let into the deep secrets or the hidden things. It's not the way it works with Christianity. That's not what mystery means here. Throughout the New Testament, when this word is used related to to Christianity, it means this, something that in the past was unknown, not understood by people, by the human race, God has now made known. He has revealed. He has made it public knowledge. What has been concealed, Paul says, that mystery, I am now revealing. I am making known. It's not just for a hidden group of people. This is truth that God wants shouted from the rooftops. He wants the world to now understand this mystery that no one understood before. That's what Paul is referring to when he uses the word mystery. So now what I want to do is we are getting to some very critical statements in these few verses, so that what we need to do is take the phrases and at times the words one at a time and look very carefully and very closely at what Paul is saying. So let's just begin to do that. Here's the first statement. Paul writes, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. What does that partial hardening mean? Well, it doesn't mean that a certain number of Jews have been hardened. What is true is that the vast majority of them have been hardened, and there's a remnant that God has kept for Himself always throughout every generation. But Paul is not talking about a number of Jews here. He's talking about a period of time. There is a partial hardening, meaning it's not a forever hardening. It's a definite hardening that lasts for a period of time and the guarantee that that is the interpretation 
comes in the verse that follows or the statement that follows. Before we get there, let me just remind you. The hardening of God we looked at in Romans chapter 9. You know, in Romans chapter 9, Paul writes this. God hardens whomever he wills. The hardening of God, the hardening of God is when God gives someone over to the power of their sin. The nation of Israel had rejected Jesus Christ in a wholesale fashion. And because of their stubborn refusal to believe in Him, they saw Him, they saw the works that He did, they heard His teaching, they saw His wisdom, and yet they refused to believe. And because of their refusal, God hardened them in their sin. He gave them over to the power of their sin. It was something inflicted upon them by God. That's the truth that we looked at in the ninth chapter of Romans. Now look at the phrase again. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Has come. Do you see the precision of the language and how perfectly it agrees with Romans chapter 9? This is not a statement about something that is true about Israel. This is a statement about something that has been done to Israel. A hardening has come upon them. It's come from somewhere else, which is God, and been placed upon the nation. And in Paul's day, they remained in their hardening separated from Christ, refusing to believe, and for 1,900 years, 2,000 years, that hardening has continued, and they're still in the same situation that they were in Paul's day. 2,000 years of history, and the hardening is still there. It's a judicial hardening. It's a punishment by God because of their refusal to see and accept and believe the Son that He sent to be their Savior. And so they're under the hardening of God. And here's the next question. How long will it last? Look at the phrase in verse 25. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When all of the Gentiles that God has determined to save are saved when all of the elect Gentiles are brought into the kingdom of God, regenerated, and put their faith in Jesus, when that full number has come in, then the hardening of Israel will end. That's what Paul says very clearly here. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Look at the phrase, and in this way, in the beginning of verse 26. What is that phrase referring to? Well, Paul has just said 
that Israel is going to remain in the hardening of God until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And when the full number of Gentiles has come in, in that way, all Israel will be saved. So, it certainly refers to this period of time that is taking place while God is bringing in the full number of the Gentiles, but there's something more here. Think very closely, precisely about the words. It seems like Paul is saying that the means that God is going to use to bring about this incredible transformation of the Jews is in relationship to all of the Gentiles finally coming in. It's in that way. It's as the full number of the Gentiles come in, in that way, God is going to bring about this great revival among the Jewish people. And in fact, that is what the rest of the Scripture teaches. It teaches this, that what is going to happen is as God's Spirit continues to move and brings in the Gentiles unto salvation, there is going to be a point when the full number of the Gentiles has come in and they're enjoying the blessings and the covenants of promises that God has made to Israel. That, that happens to us when we as Gentiles get saved, put our faith in Jesus, we are grafted in to the Jewish roots. We become a part of the recipients of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what's going to happen is when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, God is going to use that to stir Israel up to jealousy, seeing what He's doing among the Gentiles so that their heart is turned toward Him. And in that way, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Next question. Paul says all Israel will be saved. Who does he mean by Israel? Now, this should be obvious but I want to take a moment to pause here and explain this because there are a number of interpreters that try to take this phrase Israel and use it to mean spiritual Israel, to completely separate it from the Jewish people by ethnicity and say, oh, all that Paul is talking about here is when every person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ, all the spiritual seed of Abraham, when all of them are saved, then Christ is going to return. But here's the problem with that. There is some very specific rules of interpretation that need to be applied when exegeting Scripture. That means when we study Scripture, we need to make sure that as we are seeking to get at the meaning that God inspired the writer to write, we need to apply certain rules of interpretation or hermeneutics. And here's one of those rules. I know I'm getting a little complicated here, but it's really important that you understand who the they are, who Israel is. Here's a rule of interpretation. If within a context, a unit of thought, there is a word used that is given a meaning in the text, 
And then within that same context, that word is reused again twice or multiple times. It has to carry with it the same meaning that was already identified by the text. If you change the meaning without the Scripture, you see, if Scripture changes the meaning, here's what happens. It becomes very explicit in the text that the meaning is changed. It identifies by certain verbiage or phrases, hey, this is a new understanding of this word. But if that is not explicit in the text, you have to carry the meaning forward that has already been established by that word. And so here's this, and that might sound really confusing, but let me try to make it a little clearer here. Verse 25, Paul uses the phrase or the word Israel. Let me read it to you again. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is the only possible meaning for the word Israel in verse 25? There's only one. He's talking about Israel and who else? The Gentiles. Israel is the Jews. The Gentiles are the non-Jews. And the whole subject line that he's been grieving about is that his nation, his kinsmen, ethnic Israel, has in vast majority rejected Christ and been cut off from the covenant promises of God. And so the only thing that Israel can possibly mean in verse 25 is the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. This is not some spiritual seed of Abraham, all that believed the same that Abraham believed, this can only mean the nation of Israel as an ethnicity, as opposed to the Gentiles, another ethnicity, all non-Jews. That's verse 25, the meaning unequivocally established for Israel. Then comes verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So what do you have to do to follow through with the rules of interpretation? You have to give Israel the same interpretation in verse 26 that it is given in verse 25 so that what Israel means and can only mean is that this is the nation of Israel. This is ethnic Israel. Verse 28 goes on to prove that. I could give you several other reasons, but that one is so obvious and profound that it leaves us with only one interpretation, and that is that the Israel in verse 26 is the nation of Israel. It's ethnic Israel. And then it says, all Israel will be saved. A-L-L. What does that mean? What is the all? Well, it doesn't mean every living, breathing Jew. It doesn't mean every Jew from history past down through the last 2,000 years and up to the time that Christ returns. It doesn't mean mathematical precision on every. You have to get the meaning from the context. And what has he been talking about? Let me give it to you again. He's been talking about this wholesale rejection of the Jews. 
Not that every single Jew is cut off from Christ, but the vast majority of them are. He's broken over that. And that's been true not only in Paul's day, but for the last 2,000 years. It's been this all of Israel that has been, not with mathematical precision, but vast proportions, cut off from God. And so what Paul is saying here, that all Israel will be saved, is that there is going to come a day when there is going to be a reversal of the situation that was in place in Paul's day and has continued for the past 2,000 years. And that is this, just like the vast majority of Israel is cursed and cut off from Christ, the vast majority of the nation of Israel, the Jews, are going to turn their hearts to Christ and be saved. It'll be, a, it'll be a true statement when that happens to say that the nation of Israel is a Christian nation. Not every single Jew, but the vast proportion of them will be saved. Now look specifically and closely at what Paul says and how he explains that this will happen. This is powerful. This is in such perfect agreement with all that we've looked at from Romans 9, 10 and up to this verse in Romans 11. Remember the election of God, the effectual call of God, the fact that God is the author of salvation from beginning to end completely all on His own. Look at what it says. He, the Deliverer, will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Who is the Deliverer? Church, who's the Deliverer? Jesus Christ is. And what does Paul say that Jesus is going to do? It says that Jesus is going to do something, and what He's going to do is He's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. This is not about something that the Jews are going to do. This is about something that is going to be done to the Jew. Jesus is going to banish ungodliness from them. He's going to take it away from them. He's going to separate ungodliness from them. He's going to take their unrighteousness and He's going to make it righteousness. Before we unpack that further, look at the phrase, as it is written. What Paul does after he makes that statement about the deliverer, Jesus, banishing ungodliness from Jacob, he goes to the Old Testament and he reaches into the Old Testament and pulls forward some quotes from several prophets And what he does is he grabs several phrases and he puts them together and says two specific things. Here's the first phrase. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Here's the second statement. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What he's doing there is he's giving summary truth to what several Old Testament prophets said. Now let me remind you, what is Paul teaching here? 
He's teaching a mystery. Remember, he said, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of this mystery. What's a mystery? A mystery is something that had been hidden in the past that no one saw that was beyond human ability, human comprehension that God just chose by His sovereign choice to reveal. And what Paul is teaching here is that God, by His Spirit, has shown Him something that had never been seen before. A mystery never revealed. So let me make that even more direct. Paul, by quoting these Old Testament prophets when he says, as it is written and makes these two statements, he's not saying this. Let me tell you what the Old Testament prophets meant. That's not what he's saying. He's taking it further than that. He is saying this. There is a mystery that no one understood that is actually beyond human comprehension to grasp unless God revealed it. And what happened, Paul says, is that the Spirit of God opened up this mystery to me. Paul didn't get it by his genius. Paul didn't understand this mystery because of his lifetime study of the Old Testament. No, Paul said, the Spirit of God came to me in His grace and just revealed something to me that I could never have understood, nor could any other human. And here is the mystery. Now what I want to do is I want to read a summary that I wrote because I don't want to miss anything. By the way, church, this is new insight from Paul. This is something never understood before that Paul is giving interpretation to that even the prophets who made these statements in the Old Testament didn't understand. It could be stated like this. When God has saved all of the Gentiles that He has determined to save in human history, When he's done that, when all of the elect Gentiles have come in and been saved by God, here's what's going to happen. Paul, I'm going to tell you the mystery. Jesus Christ is going to work in such a way among the Jewish people that they are going to see what they've never seen before. They are going to see Jesus as their Messiah. They're going to put their faith in Him as their Savior, as their Lord. And Jesus is going to take their ungodliness and He's going to remove it from them. He's going to take their sins and remove their sins and save them, banishing ungodliness from them, making them righteous. Ladies and gentlemen, don't miss The stupendous miracle here. Let me give you the context. Who are the Jewish people? They are those that had been given all of these Old Testament promises to for about 1,500 years. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about this Savior that was going to come. And then God sent Him and they refused to believe. They refused to believe what he said. They refused to accept what he did, although the proof was so obvious and undeniable. 
and they hated him. Now, I'm not down on the Jews, folks. I love the Jews. I'm excited about the future day when the Jews come in in wholesale fashion to the Christian church. But the point is, the Jews hated Jesus. Why? They thought he was the great blasphemer. Why? He claimed to be God. That's why they called for his crucifixion. They hated him. They were his arch enemy number one. Here's the stupendous miracle. That situation has continued not only in Jesus' day and in Paul's day with the Jew, but it's been true for the past 2,000 years. But Paul says, one day, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, God's going to do this incredible thing. He's going to take his enemies, and he's going to make them his friends. He's going to take those who hate him, and he's going to make them love him. He's going to take rebels and make them righteous. Here's what this miracle is. It is the miracle of death to life. That's what the miracle is. It's the miracle of regeneration that Paul is referring to here. What happens at regeneration. Regeneration is when God comes to someone dead in sin and makes them alive. Now just follow that process for a minute. What does death come with? It comes with deafness. Can a dead person hear? That's true spiritually. But when life comes, when regeneration comes, when Jesus Christ turns ungodliness from Jacob and takes away their sin, He's going to do that by implanting the principle of life. And when life comes, deafness becomes hearing. They're going to hear what they've never been able to hear. And just as the dead cannot understand, they can't perceive. When life comes, what happens? There's perception. There's understanding. There's comprehension. They're going to see Jesus and say, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, He is the fulfillment of the hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. He's the Messiah that we thought had not come yet for the first time. And He actually had come. He's Jesus. They're going to understand and then they're going to see. You see, with death, there's blindness. With life, there's sight. They're going to see Jesus as the very Son of God, their Savior. And with death, there's hardness of heart and inability and an unmoving heart. But with regeneration in life, there's a soft heart. There's a heart after God. That's what's going to happen when the full number of the Gentiles comes in. That's the way God saves every single person. He doesn't save the Jews different than He saves Gentiles. He saves us all the same way. We're all dead in sin. And He has to come and regenerate us and give life where there's death, hearing where there's deafness, understanding where there's no comprehension, sight where there's blindness, a heart after Him when there's been the heart of a rebel. That's regeneration. That's what Paul is saying is going to happen to the Jews in wholesale fashion when the deliverer comes from Zion and he turns ungodliness. He banishes ungodliness from Jacob. 
verse 27. So here's the point. He's not writing about a possibility here, about a potential. He is saying this is a guaranteed future event. Can you hear the language? Here is what's going to happen when the deliverer comes. He's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. He's going to take away their sins. Verse 27, and in this way, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Down through chapters 9 through 11, Paul has been showing us the grand scheme of God's redemptive plan for human history and what God is doing with the nation of Israel, past, present, and future. In reality, it would be accurate to say this. All of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is an answer to Romans chapter 9, verse 6. In Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Paul made this statement. He looked around at this situation of the Jews that broke his heart, all of his kinsmen accursed and cut off from Christ in wholesale fashion, and he makes this statement in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. He says, look, I know you look at the world, you look at the Jews, these chosen people from God, and all the promises that God made to the nation of Israel, and it looks like God is not faithful to His promises, to His Word. But Paul says this, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. And then what he does for three chapters is he proves that statement over and over and over and over again. And at the end of these three chapters, here in chapter 11, verse 27, he does it again and he says this, here is going to be the way that God fulfills his covenant promises to Israel. It's going to be like this when he comes and he takes away their sins. That's going to be the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when he comes to the nation as a whole that has those three patriarchs as their forefather, and he just does this work of sovereign power, and he takes away their sin. Last question and last statement. Do we have any idea about the details of when this is going to happen? Well, we've looked at one detail already. Paul says it's going to happen when the full number of the Gentiles has come in. When all of the Gentiles that God has determined from eternity past to save, when they all get saved, when that full number has come in, then he's going to take away this hardening and turn his people toward Jesus Christ so that they put their faith in Him as their Savior. But there's one more hint given in the text on when it's going to happen. It says, verse 26, the Deliverer will come from Zion, and He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. There is a day that the Deliverer, Jesus, is going to come again. 
It's a great and glorious day that all followers of Jesus from the days of Paul and down through the last 2,000 years right up to the day and will continue up until the final day of human history, a great day of anticipation. And what is that day? It's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day when the Deliverer comes from Zion, comes from the holy hill, comes from heaven, when He returns, He is going to turn or banish ungodliness from Jacob. One of the writers of the Old Testament says it like this, when they look upon Him whom they have pierced. They're going to see Him for who He is. And there's going to be this massive, wholesale brokenness and weeping and accepting in faith Jesus, the Son of God, as their Savior. And the natural branches are going to be grafted back into the tree of salvation. Now just look at how God works His campaign of redemptive salvation history. Let me just take one step back and show you this kind of paralleling or action, reaction, action, reaction work of God that nobody could have seen if God hadn't revealed it. Paul said, here's the way it works. Romans 9 and 10 and 11. He says, the Jews in wholesale fashion rejected Jesus. Came, He came to them. He came as their Messiah, the long-promised one they were so hoping for, they were praying for, they were looking for for so many hundreds of years. And He came and He did everything that God promised. He lived exactly the way that the Old Testament said He would. He accomplished everything the Old Testament said He would accomplish. But because of their spiritual pride and arrogance and their preconceived ideas of what they wanted in a Savior, they refused to believe in Him, and they rejected Him, and so God rejected them. And here's what Paul says. God used that as the occasion then to open up salvation to the Gentiles. So, Wholesale rejection of the Jews, opening of salvation to the Gentiles, and this incredible campaign of God down through the last 2,000 years saving Gentile races and people. You're saved. You're a part of that incredible move of God over the past 2,000 years. And what Paul says is that's going to continue. Rejection of Jews, opening the way for the salvation to the Gentiles. Just think of one way that that happened. The Jews were persecuting the apostles. Stephen is stoned, the first martyr in the early church. Paul, Saul, the writer of Romans, pre-conversion is there, giving approval to the stoning of Stephen. And then it says, in that day a great persecution broke out from the Jews against the Christians. And what happened was the Christians were scattered. And guess what they did when they were scattered? They preached Jesus. And there was an explosion of 
the gospel that went out all over the world of that day and an incredible ingathering of Gentiles came in. God used the rejection of the Jews as the occasion to open up the gospel to the Gentiles and he's been doing that for 2,000 years. And then Paul says in a very similar way, what's going to happen in the end is that the Jews, when all of the Gentiles have come in, the Jews are going to see that and God is going to use that as an occasion to incite them to jealousy so that they turn their heart toward Jesus Christ and receive Him as their Savior. It's this incredible ebb and flow of the unfolding cosmic plan of God through human history in redeeming humanity to Jesus Christ that nobody could have seen that was a mystery that has now been revealed. So here's the point. Brad, what does that have to do? Well, it has a lot of things to do with you and me here today. The gospel is for you. The gospel is to be proclaimed to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ has made the way for Jew and Gentiles to be saved through His death, His atoning work on the cross. But here's another truth that you need to get a hold of if you're a follower of Jesus. God's in charge. God is working His plan just like He has always said that He would. You could be like Paul, like the people of Paul's day, the Jewish Christians of Paul's day, and say, oh my, what is happening? Everything is upside down. All of this ungodliness among our people. What is God going to do? God had a plan. He was doing it precisely the way He intended from before He ever said, let there be light. He's been working that plan. You look around at the world today, our country today, and say, oh my, what's going to happen? Man, the Supreme Court has made this decision, and there's ungodliness everywhere. Listen, God is in charge. God is working His good plan. Nothing and no one will ever stop God from doing one single decree that He's determined to accomplish. Never. Every single one of the words of God will stand. Not one of them will fall to the ground. If you're a son or a daughter of God, every promise He's made to you in His Word is going to come true. Come hell or high water. Come all against you and an attempt to destroy you and to defeat you. Impossible! All things work for the good of those who love God and have been called according to His purpose. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. He's sovereign. He's in charge. He's carrying out His plan. And He's going to do that for you as a son or a daughter of God. Don't put your head down. Lift your head up. When things get worse, when things get tougher, that's when God specializes in delivering. That's when God specializes in displaying His power. Lift up your head. You're salvation is nigh. I think that's what we should interpret as we look at the things around us in the world. James 
you also be patient. Establish your hearts based upon the truth that we've just been talking about for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, that's how God wants you to live. He wants you to live as if his return is imminent, like it could happen before you leave here this morning. It could happen before you lay down in your bed tonight. Be ready. His coming is at hand. All of the Old Testament was about this one great promise. The Messiah is going to come and deal with sin. And then guess what? He came just like He said He would. You know what the New Testament is about? The Messiah is coming a second time. And just like He kept His promise the first time around, He's going to keep it the second time time around. Let me close with this verse from Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Do you know what that's referring to? The first coming of Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God that appeared to bring salvation. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's His second coming. He came the first time to do away with sin, to give the sacrifice for sin. He's coming the second time in glory and great power. He's going to appear and He's going to take those who are His to be with Him to live eternally in glory. Lift up your heads Evil is not going to win the day. God is going to accomplish His purpose, every one of them. For God works all things for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. That's the truth that Paul is demonstrating in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Would you please stand? Father, Always, Lord, I am shocked at your truth. I've been studying your word a long time, but I'm just blown away by how consistent and powerful and precise your truth is and how it paints this incredible, beautiful, encouraging picture of a God that is sovereign and good and doing what needs to be done. Thank you. Thank you, God, for who you are. Give us a greater vision of your majesty in your glory in relationship to your sovereign carrying out of your purposes over human history. Help us to be motivated by that to cry out to you in prayer knowing that nothing is beyond your power. Nothing is outside of your reach. Nothing is impossible for you. Thank you for that confidence. Lord Jesus, thank you. And I would say just in closing, Lord Jesus, 
Come quickly, Lord. Come quickly. Amen.